It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who don't have a ready made list of the doctors who support their decision to vaccinate because the list is really, really long. That wasn't a very catchy tagline, but you get it. No, not it. really, because <laughs> that would be a very long list. It, it would be a very long list. Also, you don't have to like bribe your doctor with money to, to, to immunize you. That's true. Like, like some do to not immunize them. <laughs> That's that's Apparently, true. Or try to to get exemptions. Yeah. But that's it, a whole other issue. That's a different episode. I'm Karen Ernst and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here at Blink Trones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And we have a really interesting show today. We are going to talk to our friend and famed law professor. Dr. Dorit Rice, um, which is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk to her a little bit about this rumor flying around about vaccine court in autism omnibus case and this guy named Zimmerman. It's a really confusing story. Yeah. And she's going to break it down for us and make it easier to understand and give us the real scoop with the law and tell us why um, vaccines still do not cause autism. Yeah, it's one of those stories that you might have caught whiff of just kind of on Twitter or Facebook. And I mean, I've read on it and I still feel like uh, I my, my my understanding of of law and this situation isn't wasn't great before Dorit kind of broke it down. So mm-hmm. I think if you if you've heard about Dr. Andrew Zimmerman and you've heard about, uh, you know, uh, another one of these conspiracies where the you know, anti-vaccine pages is saying that they finally got a revelation about this guy, mm-hmm. about autism. Have a listen to this because this will break it down nicely for you. Yes. And the other thing about that is that it's sort of become a little more mainstream, this, room, this rumor, um, because Cheryl Atkinson on her Sinclair Broadcasting Sunday show sort of promoted this conspiracy theory. Well, this one in particular, that the government was covering up uh, a known autism link. This is like, you know, the 10th time that that uh, Atkinson and others have tried to claim that some little fragment that they found was some kind of proof of cover-up. Well, yeah. You'll see uh, how it is not later yeah. in the episode. Speaking of Cheryl Atkinson, did you see her tweet that... 75% of cases of measles in Rockland County, New York, were yeah. among vaccinated people. Yeah. Yeah, so that was fun. <laughs> so that was one of those things where I'm like, man, you really don't fact check, do you? Because she or had, read. <laughs> right. Just just read. Like, I read it, and it wasn't that hard to understand. So the, the upshot was that she had, and, and just, just for background on people, Cheryl Atkinson used to be a a fairly legitimate reporter was she at cbs do you remember yes Yes. and then there were some various kinds of uh i don't know how to describe them but odd situations with her she claimed that her computer was being monitored by the government and this whole thing and um some 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 kind of sketchy stuff and now she is uh kind of independently 
being her own thing with her own website. And I don't know what else she does to, to make ends meet, but she's become the anti-vaccine community's favorite reporter, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And so her latest thing was that she had said, and I don't have these articles right up in front of me, but she had said, like you said, that, that 75% of the outbreak in in New York was yes. that that's going on right now, which has 120 some or more cases of right. measles. At the so time, that's... it was 124 when she was mm -hmm. doing her math. So she had read this article. Here's describing the, the 124 cases in New York. And then it said, and also there's a bunch of cases in Washington. And of those cases, 31 of them uh, had not gotten their vaccine. And for some reason, she put that together with the New York case. That was referring to the Washington cases. But then she said, oh, well, if 31 cases were not immunized, that means 90-some cases were immunized in New York. Mm -hmm. And anybody who does a modicum of fact-checking is like, no, no, they're talking about 31 out of 35 cases in Washington were right. not vaccinated. That's just a simple pronoun <laughs> antecedent thing. The Yeesh. pronoun and antecedent were super clear. Yeah. But she had her confirmation bias vision on and decided that it was going to mean New York because that would be the worst news for pro-vaccine people. Well, and the, it's amazing how quickly, I mean, that day that that happened, I got tweeted at by half a dozen people like, here's a fact, 75% of these cases are, are in the vaccinated. And I'm like, <laughs> where are you getting this? And they're yeah. telling me, one person on Twitter was telling me to call the health department in New York. Like, <sighs> why don't you do your research? Call the health department. Like, uh, you're making this up. I don't have to bother. <laughs> I'm in Iowa. I'm not going to bother the New York health department to, to, to figure out why you're making this weird claim. And so... You know, and then it became when I found the article, I'm like, well, this is obvious. You're yeah. just somebody. And, but the rapidity with which this exploded yeah. and all these anti-vaccine websites and, and Twitter feeds and Facebook pages were sharing this as if it were the gospel truth without any fact checking. It was amazing. And it just really goes to show you how uncritical uh, mm -hmm. these, uh, the, these groups are mm -hmm. when it comes to disseminating anything that they feel like could be on their side. That's really true. And the responses that you got from people, too, are sort of the it's like every single debate that you have with an anti-vaxxer. Here's something I made up. Why don't you go fact check it? Yeah. Um, why don't you check it first before saying it? Mm. That's that's the, the context for Zimmerman and omnibus and autism and vaccine court and Hannah pulling and a mishmash of all sorts of interesting things that we're going to discuss with Dorit is that Cheryl Atkinson was promoting it. But let's do a little bit of Around the Web. Nathan, what do you have for Around the Web today? So since, as we've just been describing, it's so easy for uh, anti-vaccine messages to proliferate, and it's very difficult, and we know from you know a human psychology standpoint that debunking stuff is not as effective as presenting good information and getting that into the minds of people. So Bunking stuff. Bunking. Let's bunk instead of debunk. So we're going to do some, we're doing a, some pediatricians and I, Dr. Jamie Friedman and some other pediatricians and I had this idea to do uh, a fact today, a good fact, informational tidbit about any, whatever vaccine a day for the month of February. So we just are doing a hashtag on Twitter. It's called VaxFactsFebruary. So that's V-A-X-F-A-C-T-S February. 
So that's uh, that's, that's what that is. Cool. And I pronounced the R in February right there on purpose so people remember that that's in there in the hashtag. So get on there. You know, as we're recording this, there's still a good two-thirds of the month of February. So hopefully there will be plenty more February for you to uh uh, get in on those Vax Facts and then join us in the conversation online and uh, uh, look for the hashtag and look at all the people that are tweeting on it because it's pretty fun. Cool. That's very cool. I like that. and uh, I, I like your bunking efforts. Yes. With your... I'm glad it's F-A-C-T-S too instead of F-A-X. Right. Because it'd be like, are, it's like, are we faxing? Oh, yeah, it's vaccines? 290s, yeah. Whew. Okay, um... Well, I actually have a totally different around the web than my Cheryl Atkinson thing. Mm-hmm. We've been um, around the web and back again already. I know, around the web. Let's go around again. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Jay Gordon. Oh, my. Is pediatrician to such celebrities as Mayim Bialik and mm-hmm. uh, who is Amy Farrah Fowler, of course, on Big Bang Theory. Big Bang, yes. And Jenny McCarthy, who is practically no one. Um, and a couple of other famous people. I don't know. Um, he put out a tweet two days ago, and I'm just going to read it here. If you are living in the midst of a measles outbreak and you have an older unvaccinated child when you have been reluctant to give the MMR, now is the time. There are personal and public health considerations. Okay, so that sounds... Um, that sounds what exciting, interesting. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, that was two days ago, mm-hmm. and because more than anything, Doctor J wants to be liked by everybody. He had a couple follow-up tweets. Here's one: someone claimed that Doctor J has flipped on his vaccine stance, and he he tweeted, "Yes, I'm selling MMRs on street corners because that's." That's flipping on I mean that's what you do, right, Nathan? I have the same stance I've had the same stance I've had for some years. Evaluate risks and benefits of vaccines in general and specific vaccines and give them when it makes sense. I will push none of my families to give their twelve month old babies MMR, you know, when they're at highest risk for bad complications. So Mm -hmm. um for anyone who thinks that Dr. J has changed his mind he hasn't. He's trying. Like I said, he really likes to be liked by everyone, except apparently me, because I will just say that I am on year six of a doctor, a personal Dr. J grudge. And if mm. anybody knows anything about me, that's I hold grudges forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have plenty of grudges against places of business that I can't mention on the podcast, but mm-hmm. I, I haven't set foot in uh, into a certain St. Paul restaurant since ooh, 1997 because they fired my friend Kim. So, wow. yeah. yeah. It's, and you haven't been in Dr. Gordon's office for how long? Seriously. I haven't forgiven him <laughs> because when Voices for Vaccines first launched, um, Seattle mama doc Wendy Sue Swenson mm-hmm. um, let me write a little guest post on her blog sort of explaining who I was and what motivated me to advocate for vaccines. And I told this story about how when my baby was a newborn, my baby's you know, about to turn 11. But when he was a newborn, he was exposed to measles at 10 days old at my older son's preschool. Well, Dr. J hopped on in the comments and scolded me for taking my child out into public and said Uh that, um, you know, he encourages mothers of newborns to take their children outside for long walks and to avoid other children. 
Um, this is this is uh, advice that makes sense if you're a wealthy celebrity with nannies right. and you live in California. Yeah. I am pretty much the opposite of every single one of those things. <laughs> and so it's just it's it's not possible if you have a newborn and you have an older child, they're going to be exposed to other children. So it's really important for those other children to be vaccinated against things like measles and chickenpox because newborns are some ba- some of the people in our society who are at risk along with people undergoing chemotherapy or people on immunosuppressants for Crohn's disease or people with complex medical needs you know it's just not possible to ask those people to live the lives of Jenny McCarthy and her nanny and her children when most of us simply can't so that's my grudge against Dr. J and babies should definitely get vaccinated at 12 months old with their first dose of MMR. I agree. And I don't, well, actually I was part of that conversation on Seattle Mama Doc's blog. So I remember that very vividly. And that was, that was some pretty awful uh, mom shaming that he was doing. And he tried to back off too when it was a little bit like, you know, how dare you say that to me? He -hmm. doesn't like being disliked. No, no. You know, there's been a few outlets that have reported on this tweet about him saying to immunize your child at age, if you have an older kid, whatever. Honestly, it's not news from him. He, these kind of, kind of hedging, um, tweets are par for the course. It's not the first time I think that he said something supportive of vaccines in some way. And then his supporters all kind of say, Oh, what we thought that we, you know, how, how did they get to you? And then he like kind of walks it back. Like it's just the usual, honestly. And I don't give a lot of attention to it anymore. And it really is true. Any Anyone, even if they say that they are a doctor, who comes to you and says, well, vaccines are okay-ish, but do it like this way that all of the experts don't say to do it. You know, if they're that far outside the norm, you really, you really have to question what it is they're looking at. And I don't think Jay has ever presented any solid evidence. I'm calling him Jay like he's my friend. Um, he's ever presented any solid evidence about why why people should delay this or that vaccine. I'm not even sure that he advocates for a specific schedule. I, it feels like it's just like feelings. Like how, what do you feel like you want to vaccinate your kid against? And and it's very, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very odd. And I think that people should feel very cautious when mm-hmm. there's someone coming at them with that sort of uh, stance about anything medical. Yeah, it's interesting if you look at the very few actual board-certified pediatricians that are out there that do advocate, at least in some ways, against the vaccine schedule or push their own alternative. They're all in situations where I think their their amount of privilege and the families uh, that they see, like they're in this bubble that is not um, necessarily representative of uh, the rest of the world, certainly not, or, or, or even the rest of the country, mm-hmm. where sure, if you are a, a pediatrician to the stars, there's less risk of certain things. And so, yeah, maybe you can do things like never bring your newborn out or <laughs> never bring your child out. Uh, and maybe your children are, you know, the, if you, de- depending on what demographic you're serving, your children could be healthier than the average population because, you know, the, these things go along with each other sometimes, but 
to then take those experiences that are not representative of the rest of the country, uh, mm -hmm. that are not representative of other communities, and then be out there saying, well, this is a, this is a good philosophy. Let's just uh, choose based on uh, your feeling as to whether or not you should immunize. Uh, that, that is real potential uh, to have negative health effects uh, and to when other people start to to follow this, you know, mm -hmm. it's just like a lot of the things that we talk about when it comes to things like alternative medicine and homeopathy and all these things that for people who are uh, rich and celebrities and whatnot, sure, they can spend all the money they want on this stuff. But then when they start trying to advocate for other people to do it, people are going to be spending money they don't have to do these things that don't work and don't help. Right. And so we have to be very cautious about our, our public health messaging. We want to make sure that everybody knows what works, what doesn't, what's cost effective, what's not. And, and that is part of advocating for the, the vaccine schedule because it is the best tested. It helps mm -hmm. everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is going to keep everybody, every child, the safest that they can be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, just from a parent's practical perspective, once you have more than one child, Lord help you if you have three or four, uh -huh. you don't want to take your kids into the doctor a whole bunch of times for vaccines. Like, oh, <laughs> let's come back in a week. There's mm -hmm. a million things going on. Busy parents across the country are grateful for an easy to adhere to schedule. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's... uh turn to Dr. Dorit Rice and see what she has to say about all that Zimmers is not vaccines causing autism. There Sold? We go. Oh, okay. <laughs> Roll that beautiful vaccine footage. We are now joined by Dr. Dorit Rice, who is a good friend to us and also um, a, a wonderful gal. Mm -hmm. She's a law school professor at the University of California Hastings Law School. She is a nationally recognized and adored experts in the intersection of vaccination and the law, especially in the United States and especially in California. And so welcome, Dorit. So good to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we brought you here today because one of the things sort of going around right now is this curious case of Andrew Zimmerman, Dr. Andrew Zimmerman. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of give a background about um, who Dr. Andrew Zimmerman is for us? So he's a pediatrician. He used to work for Kennedy Kruger Institute in John Hopkins, and he apparently has treated many children with autism. Right now he's working, in, unless I'm mistaken, in Mass General. He moved away. And basically he's a pediatrician with many, many years of experience. And at the time we're talking about, he was uh, asked by the government to be one of their expert witness in the autism omnibus proceeding. Was he connected to the Hannah Pulling case? Was he one of her doctors? It's hard for me to know if he was one of the, her doctors, but he was connected. Uh, John Pauling worked under him. Uh, my impression is that he was a young doctor uh, under the guidance of Dr. Zimmerman. And Dr. Zimmerman certainly saw the girl and knew the father. Uh, at, it, at the time, they wrote together an article describing the case and doing a retrospective review 
of several cases uh, of other children with autism to look if there's a connection to mitochondrial disorders. Okay, so this is complicated. There's a lot of strings to pull out here. And Nathan, I want you to pipe up too because uh, you understand a lot of this case too. Sure. But let's start with let's start with Hannah Poling and who she was and why she's so important to the anti-vaxxers in the world, especially those who claim that vaccines are in some causally way related to autism. So Hannah Poling was a young girl who, uh, whose father was a neurologist and whose mother was apparently a nurse. Uh, and she has received uh, vaccines when she was about 19 months. And after that, she developed a fever and apparently regressed, uh, developed uh, systems of um, a neuropsychological disorder. Uh, it's, she was apparently on the autism spectrum, but it went beyond that. Her importance here is that Hannah Pauling's uh, parents sued, filed a claim for compensation under the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. Uh, claiming that the child's injury was connected to the, to the vaccines, not unreasonably given what I just described, given the close connection between the vaccines, her fever, and her later regression. It's not quite as clear as I just described because Hannah also had a series of ear infections in her young life, and there may have been some question on whether the vaccines or the ear infection caused the problem. But there was a clear temporal connection between vaccines, fever, regression and uh, the government after looking at the case decided to concede the case that means they said there is enough there to meet the legal standard the legal standard is uh, more likely than not 50 percent more than 50 percent likely that the girl's problems uh, were related to the vaccines but the government's concession had two unusual uh, aspects that are important here one the government conceded a table injury Table injury means that there's a table in which things that may be causally related to the vaccine are listed with the time frame in which they can happen. And if you have a table injury, causation is presumed. So unless the government proves something else caused the injury, we're assuming it's from vaccines. The second part uh, of that made this unusual was the government conceded that the girl's uh, vaccines may have aggravated a pre-existing problem. So it wasn't that the vaccine caused a child with no problems to regress. It was a child that already had a latent problem and the vaccines made it worse. However, the, the government concession was leaked by an, uh, to the anti-vaccine uh, movement and it became a, a source of headlines of the government compensated a child for autism. Obviously, that was not quite the case. In fact, vaccine court itself in later cases said uh, you can't treat the polling concession as our, us compensating a child for autism. That's not what happened there. However, that's how it's presented and uh, has been presented since the time. Yeah, in fact, I'm looking at the uh, remarks that were made in another case where the, I believe the special master said, in polling versus HHS, the presiding master clarified that the family was compensated because the respondent conceded 
that the polling child had suffered a table injury, not because the respondent or the special master had concluded that any vaccination had contributed to causing or aggravating the child's ASD. Yes. And in fact, in the case, wasn't it um, determined, I don't have the language in front of me, but it was determined, uh, it was compensated for, I mean, the table injury that we're talking about was a case of encephalitis, correct? It was encephalitis with features of autism that was the... The, the table injury? I think it was an encephalopathy with features of regressive Encephalopathy, autism. yeah, that, yes. yeah that, that makes sense. That's what the language, but remember, because this is a concession, there was no decision by a third party actor. The government right. said, we think this meets the, the relatively low legal standard for this. That is a case that's kind of widely used by anti-vaccine websites and vocal anti-vaxxers to kind of get like a leg in and say, oh well, Vaccines don't cause autism, except what about this, where clearly they did. But in reality, the, it is neither clear nor do the facts support that the, the vaccines, even in that case, uh, like nobody, nobody has decided that vaccines cause even that case. Nobody has decided it. And there's a lot of question mark. So how does that bring us then today? So we know that we're saying that Zimmerman was involved somewhat, at least in the case of Hannah Poling, in part because he helped write the um, the article that was published on her. Yes, and he was involved in one other way. The government conceded the case relatively early, but mm -hmm. the government conceded the encephalopathy, and there was a question whether the child's later seizures, the child also has a seizure disorder, mm -hmm. can be connected to the vaccine. Zimmerman mm -hmm. wrote an expert report on the seizures that were used to support the government conceding that part. So he came in after the concession and filed an, an additional expert re report on the seizures. That's sort of the, the Hannah pulling string. And so when people say vaccine court, and we should probably give a brief explanation about what, what vaccine court is. But before we do, when people say, you know, vaccine court has compensated people for autism. And I replied, no, it never has. I'm still correct, even when they say, well, what about Hannah pulling? Yes, you're still correct. I like being correct. The, and the court itself says it in several recent decisions. It says we had never compensated a child on a claim of ASD. On those autism claims, there is the autism omnibus proceeding. Yes. And this is also very confusing to those of us who um, didn't go to law school, which is everyone but you on this call. <laughs> Should I start with vaccine court or with the autism omnibus proceeding? Why don't you start with vaccine court and then round us into the omnibus proceeding? So the background to, the, to, to this story is that in the 1980s, after concerns about the pertussis vaccine, uh, there was a set of lawsuits against vaccine manufacturers. Most of them lost and many of them, was, even though that one, were probably very ill-founded. But because vaccines are very low profit, manufacturers started leaving the market. Uh, the idea of a no-fault compensation program has been raised before this, the 1980s, but this crisis around manufacturers leaving the ma market and vaccines suddenly looking that they won't be available prompted the Congress to act. And the compromise was created between parents who thought their children were injured by vaccines, health associations, manufacturers, and Congress, under which a no-fault compensation program was created that limited liability to manufacturers. What's important for us is that the program gives people who claim they were injured by vaccines a few advantages. One, 
they don't have to show fault. All they have to show is that the vaccine caused the harm and damages. Two, even to show causation, even to show that the vaccine caused the harm, they get breaks. First, some injuries are table injuries that we've just mentioned. And second, even for other injuries, there's a relaxation of the standard. Usually, to show causation, you have to show that there is a scientific link using literature. In vaccine court, if you have a plausible theory supported by an expert, that can be enough for compensation. That's a big simplification. So you have the break of what do you need to prove. You have a break in terms of the money you have to pay. Usually, in the tort case, you have to pay the costs of litigation and your lawyer gets 30 to 50% of, of the award if you win. In vaccine court, your lawyer's fees are covered by the program, even if you lose, as long as bringing the case was reasonable. And the program covers the costs of litigation, including expert witnesses, which can be very expensive. Third, the process simplifies. The rules of evidence don't apply, and many things that won't be allowed in regular courts are allowed. So it gives petitioners, claimants, a lot of breaks. But it, on the other hand, it also gives protection to manufacturers by limiting the ability to sue them. If you're claiming a vaccine injury, you always have to go through the program first. And under Supreme Court decisions, some cases cannot go to civil court at all. Some cases can go after you go through the program, but some cases cannot. So that's vaccine court. In the late 1990s, following a number of developments, many parents brought cases to the courts claiming vaccines cause their child, cause their child autism. They did try to go to civil courts first, but civil courts told them, the law says you have to go to vaccine court first. Altogether, about 5,000 cases claiming that vaccines caused autism were filed with the court. The court had a procedure that has been used in the past to handle a larger number of cases that raise the same question, and that's an omnibus proceeding. That means that instead of litigating 5,000 cases each by themselves, uh, several cases are chosen to litigate the more general question. So, uh, can vaccines cause autism? Not did vaccines cause autism in this case? And these cases were to be decided first, and that result could be applied to the other cases. Although parents didn't have to accept the result of, of their proceeding, it would have been, well, even if parents didn't like it, and some parents continued the litigation after them, it would have been very strong barrier to raising the same claims again because they've already been thoroughly litigated. So the court created an omnibus autism proceeding in agreement with a group of representatives of the petitioners. The petitioners created a steering group that would represent them, a few lawyers. Uh, and in this discussion with the government, nine cases were chosen to examine three theories one, that MMR vaccines cause autism. Two, that thimerosal in vaccines cause autism. And three, that the combination of thimerosal in, in vaccine and MMR cause autism. Uh, the, what was exam the first set of cases to be examined looked at the combined theory, that thimerosal in vaccines and MMR together caused autism. And this is where Dr. Zimmerman's involvement came up. At the for the theory that a combination of Simrazil and MMR together caused autism. Why are we hearing about Dr. Andrew Zimmerman now? What it, what, why is he being brought up at this point? 
So Dr. Zimmerman was, was one of the experts whose uh, testimony was thought in for the first theory, and he ended up not testifying. He had testified since in cases about mitochondrial disorder, and I'll go back to that later. But what appears to have happened is that uh, one of the in one of the cases, Yates uh, Hazelhurst's case, the parents of Yates brought a claim against Yates' doctor after they went, went through vaccine court. They brought it in 2001, so I think they brought it while vaccine court was still pending, but it was on hold until these cases were done. You can't sue your doctor after going through vaccine court, so they brought the case there. To bring a medical malpractice case, which is what this was, you have to have expert witnesses. What looks like happened is that at some point between the end of the omnibus proceeding and the recent years, uh, Yates became a patient of Dr. Zimmerman. I'm speculating here, but it fits what uh, we know. And uh, Dr. Zimmerman agreed to be the expert witness in that case to support Yates' claim on two counts, apparently. He agreed to testify uh, that this was malpractice, that, doctor, that uh, Yates said uh, doctors uh, didn't properly administer the vaccines, which is a little strange because Dr. Zimmerman is not a general pediatrician. He doesn't regularly give vaccines, and it's not clear that he can reasonably testify to the practice of such pediatricians. But he agreed to testify to, to the reasonableness of giving Yates the vaccine, and he agreed to testify that the vaccine caused Yates harm. This brought him in connection with uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's promoting the current theories, and apparently at some point, Zimmerman told Kennedy that he was denied testifying in the 2007 uh, hearings about the autism omnibus proceeding cases because he told the government that after the polling case he thought that vaccines may cause a, a autism in some children. He had already written his report at some at this point but but he says that after hearing that the government told him he cannot he doesn't have to testify anymore and later the government attorneys mentioned his expert report in the discussion of the case in the hearing, and apparently he sees that as inappropriate. Okay, and he wrote an affidavit saying basically what I just said, that he told the government that he, that he thinks in some cases vaccines cause autism, and the use of his report, initial report, saying there's no link after that is inappropriate. This is, a, this is kind of how he got into this. It's not the whole story. And I read the statement that he made. I, the first thing that jumped out at me is he seems to use both. I was kind of surprised to somebody with his level of education that he did not take any time to describe um, because he uses both the terms autism, but then he also says encephalopathy with features of autism, if I remember correctly from the statement that he put out. And he doesn't explain the nuance there at all. And I think that is very frustrating for people that are trying to like get down to the bottom of what does he actually think? Because it sounds like he's speculating that based on his, uh, he mentions his personal observations. Uh, I don't think that he mentioned any particular study that showed this to be the case, but that in children with mitochondrial disorder, which basically was what we saw with Hannah Poling, that, you know, a stressor, whether it's a vaccine or something else, an illness, a vaccine preventable disease could cause 
uh, a problem, could cause some level of damage, and it could cause encephalopathy. But he kind of conflates it all together in his statement, and I thought that was very frustrating. So this has now kind of been, again, a banner thing to be waved around by the anti-vaccine community. But what... Uh, what's really going on? What's, yeah, what's really going on with this? So here's some even more background. In yeah. addition to the affidavit, uh, Zimmerman gave a, de a deposition that's several hundred of pages long. Uh, and I read it. Uh, you don't have to. Good work. Basically, uh, so the deposition went through a lot of this material from that time. What bothers Zimmerman is that he feels the use of his report was inappropriate. But the deposition makes it clear that he thinks the claims by Andrew Wakefield about MMR had no basis. It also makes it clear that he thinks the theme result theory uh, was completely disproven. In his report, what Zimmerman actually said was there's no link between MMR and autism or Thimerosal containing vaccines and autism. The, th the case was decided on a, on a specific question. The case asked, is there a link between a combination of Thimerosal containing vaccines and autism and MMR and autism? And the government brought evidence on that. This wasn't a general Vac do vaccines cause autism without any background? In that, a legal case is a little bit like a scientific article. Uh, when you're making a claim about causation, you have to actually have a theory on how causation worked. In this case, the theory was the children got thimerosal-containing vaccines and MMR and then developed autism. And that's what the government set out to disprove. Zimmerman's opinion on other issues weren't really relevant to the, to the case and to the use of his opinion. Now, I would say the government took a risk because there was nothing stopping the petitioners from calling Zimmerman once his report was put in and asking him, what do you think? Uh, and, and that might have added in complications that were not about the theories in the case. However, the question of mitochondrial disorders was not part of this case. Zimmerman's testimony was were brought in on a specific issue. One question that I have that you can probably shed a lot more light on for me is one of the things that is kind of uh, brought up with this from the anti-vaccine pages is this idea that like that this is this means that the government's hiding something. So Zimmerman told the it's Department of Justice lawyers yes. that were representing the one side of the case. Uh, he told them th his theory about mitochondrial disorders kind of quote-unquote, off the record. Whether this was causatively or not, they decided not to use him as a witness. Is this a nefarious thing? I mean, I don't know anything about how legal proceedings happen, but it seems to me like if you are on that side and, the, and these are the lawyers that are doing it, they're going to pick the people that are going to be the best on the stand, that are going to make the best case. Their job is not to, like, present everything to the public. Their job is to make the best case that, you, that they can. Does that sound right? That's exactly right. I've talked to several practitioners on this, and again, the, the part of the issue is that they really, they're, they're litigating a specific case, that, as you said, trying to make the best case for their side. Uh, they don't have to bring in other theories that are not part of the case for the other side. That is not part of their job. Their job is to make their case. Uh, the petitioners get to make their case. So. The events around Zimmerman ha happened in 2007. Let's say in 2007, even though the polling case study was published before that, the petitioners did not yet know about the mitochondrial case.
By 2008, David Kirby has leaked the polling concession and the polling discussion was discussed in public and petitioners knew if they thought they should go back, reopen the case and add it a mitochondrial claim and call in Zimmerman, whose case study on the, on the issue was public, there was nothing stopping them. They could have done that and, and if they thought they were going to lose, they may have done that. They didn't because they thought the theories they had were valid. They sincerely believed, that's my reading, they sincerely believed at the time that MMR and Simrazol were the main causes. So claiming that the government hid something when a year later they knew of the theory, they knew what was behind it, uh, they knew Zimmerman was part of the case study that supported the theory, is unconvincing. If the government hid something, it wasn't hidden for long. Uh, as you said, there's no requirement for a lawyer to disclose uh, things that would have the other side and are really not directly the theory under discussion in the case, or even if they were directly the theory under discussion. Uh, there's nothing nefarious here. Uh, I mean, so I expect, I naively expect government lawyers to live to a higher standard than regular lawyers. So maybe it would have been nice if they said, if. We don't trust Dr. Zimmerman anymore. Let's leave him out of this and not introduce his report. My reading on what happened there is that the, the petitioners mentioned Dr. Zimmerman, and that is reflected in the special master's opinion that the petitioners brought him up, and the government responded. But in any rate, so reading the decisions in the omnibus autism cases, Dr. Zimmerman is mentioned in two of them in a footnote. He's not a big part of the decision making. He's, and Dr. Zimmerman also agrees with my general opinion that's based on these other experts that set out such a detailed case. So A, there wasn't clear wrong, there wasn't really wrongdoing here. B, um, whatever happened didn't have a strong impact on the case. If there's nothing nefarious going on and he was a footnote and he, his ideas weren't related to the theory of the case, and this was all in 2007. And when I looked at my calendar this morning, it was 2019. Yes. Why is he coming up today? In part because he submitted a recent affidavit in the Hazelhurst, Hazelhurst case supporting Hazelhurst. And he mentions these claims now. Uh, they don't have a lot of other evidence on their side. So they're kind of using this to claim there was a conspiracy to hide a link between vaccines and autism. Kennedy's RFK Jr. is presenting this as Zimmerman was a main part that the people in the autism omnibus proceeding were denied justice. And that's just isn't the case. That's just incorrect. My reading is he gave a recent affidavit. Uh, it fit into, maybe it's in, maybe it sincerely fit into the views of people who think there's a conspiracy to hide a link between vaccines and autism. Mm -hmm. And they're using this to support their claim. They really want to believe there was a conspiracy. You would have to believe there's a conspiracy in order to think that vaccines cause autism because there's so much data out there proving that it doesn't and it can't. So I'm always fascinated by these conspiracies that are like way out in the open too, like this one. Like <laughs> we've just talked about like all this stuff, a lot of this is not news. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not as if there isn't, you know, the CDC has a page that discusses mitochondrial disorders, mm -hmm. discusses cases like that, looks at what evidence is there and whatnot. It's not as if there's some hidden thing. I mean, the same thing was true with the 
Thompson debacle a couple of years ago. It's mm-hmm. like this conspiracy. And then you look at the actual paper and it actually like the, the if it's if there's a conspiracy, then we have the worst conspiracy hiders in the in the world because they like publish the findings <laughs> of the conspiracy in the paper and then explain them. But <laughs> that's it's it's amazing. For Zimmerman I would add that he has that there were several cases brought since the auti- autism omnibus proceeding that tried to claim my child had a mitochondrial disorder and went through exactly what Hannah Pauling did and Zimmerman testified in a few of them. And these were consistently rejected in very detailed hmm. decision by vaccine court. He doesn't have data on that. Uh, on that. Yeah. There's just no data supporting it. Uh, so the court said there's no data supporting this belief. Whatever mm-hmm. science we have goes the other way. The question was examined and these beliefs were rejected. Not only is there no good evidence of a conspiracy, there's no good evidence of his theory about vaccines and autism. Going back to the omnibus proceedings, how nuanced were was the special master in his decision how was there any amount of eh, you're probably not right or was it was it a clear-cut case the i'm paraphrasing i think a little bit but the wording was these are decisions that are not even close Uh, it was a very very clear-cut case and we're talking about decisions that were hundreds of pages long and dissected the data and the experts qualifications from every direction and they were very very there is nothing there. There is no evidence of a link generally, and there's no evidence in these specific cases. You refer to the Thompson case, and I think we're seeing a pattern here. The pattern here is uh, someone who seems credible steps forward. The anti-vaccine people point and say, see, he's proving wrongdoing, he's proving a fraud, uh, and he's proving that vaccines cause autism. A closer look shows that there's no science showing vaccines cause autism, and there's no real evidence of fraud. This is a second uh, time that we've been through this, and in both cases, there's little there. I think at most it shows how poor their evidence uh, mm-hmm. for their beliefs is. Yeah, there's a lot of layers because there's the layer of the way that uh, unscrupulous anti-vaccine websites will take even what their source is. They'll start peeling away the context to make it as bad as possible. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the layer of, well, even what this person says, even though he has some expertise, it's not as important as the evidence. Even an expert, if they can't produce the evidence, that's still their opinion. And so you have, you know, Thompson saying things that aren't supported by the literature. You have Zimmerman with his theory, which may be a great theory. Maybe he's got something. Maybe he needs to actually do research to back it up. But it's not been shown in dozens of studies looking at vaccines and autism that there's any connection. Um, These theories are fine and personal opinions are fine, but they're not evidence. And so we have these multiple layers, the the parfait of of (laughs) anti-vaccine like whipped cream and chocolate at the very bottom of which and the the parfait is so tasty to the anti-vaccine yeah. uh you know movement they never get to the truth they just stay in the cream okay well um just one last quick question for our good friend Dorit i've noticed that there's a lot more interest in the anti-vaccine side in using courts and the law to litigate their position. So my question is, what is a better measure of whether or not vaccines are safe and effective? Is it the courts or is it, I don't know, science? The science, but 
I would say that there is a role for the courts in individual cases in assessing whether they should be compensated. And remember that you sometimes will want to compensate cases where the science isn't clear mm -hmm. uh, because there's a value judgment there. W we, we could logically say, and, and I think we do say, because vaccines are a social good, the costs should be distributed across society as well. So if someone gets a vaccine injury, they have personal costs in taking care of themselves. So as a society, we should take care of them and we should cover the costs and we should make it easy for people claiming this to be compensated. So I think there is a role for the courts in handling claims of compensation, etc. But because we're making a, a value judgment that says we'll compensate easily, we should be careful in using that as evidence of safety. Well, excellent. Does that make sense? It makes a whole lot of sense. Your explanations are so clear and I can see why your students love you so much. Well, let us them that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today, Dorit. Thanks for having me. And thank you, all of you at home, for participating and joining us in this conversation. Uh, what is our call to action this month? Well, everybody should go on Twitter and check out the hashtag VaxFaxFebruary. Now that is, <laughs> I keep deliberately pronouncing that R. I know it's silent, but I'm pronouncing it on purpose. It's not silent. It is, hash, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's I overpronounce every word. No, it's February. It's February. I, I've always learned that you say February. No. And the R is silent. Would you say library? L no, I would not say library. <laughs> I would say library. Well, it's February. But there's a it's different. You probably I'm, don't. How do you say I'm mi gonna look mittens? This up. Mittens? Mittens and kittens. I say mittens and Buttons. kittens. What are you talking about? Well, so some people say like mittens and kittens and they don't say the T's. Mittens. Mittens, mittens and mittens. kittens. <laughs> Go to hashtag V A X F A C T S F E B R U. A-R-Y, Vax Vax February, and uh, give, us a little, give us a little wave and tell us uh, what facts you know about immunizations and why they're important. But I tell you, this has been like a grammar English nerds um, episode or something with, I, we've had a pronoun antecedent things and now we're doing pronunciation. I love it. This is why I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, my name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here in Des Moines, Iowa. Find me on uh, Twitter, which is at PedsGeekMD. Find me on Facebook. Find me at my blog, PedsGeekMD.com. All right. Keep it real, everyone. Bye. Bye.